Hey there, and welcome to the daily podcast where wisdom smacks us with kisses or love taps. I'm Michelle Spiva, a wisdom strengthening coach, your host, and practical priestess of wisdom. Join us daily to gain wisdom and mental strength as we tackle innovative thinking, address emotional and behavioral life traps, and yes, provide you with some practical how-tos to wrap it all up. So settle in or crank up the speed 2x, whatever gets your mental processes firing as we dive in. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Michelle Spiva, your Practical Priestess of Wisdom with today's podcast of Wisdom Smack. Join me on the flip because today is going to be story time. I want you to check out um, how is your pivot game, but we're going to be talking about an unlikely success story, and that is China. Now, if you got certain feelings this you pass this one on but we're going to be doing like a little story time history and i'm going to be talking about um we're going to take a little little walk back uh of how this country went from the impoverished of the world to in less than 50 years becoming one of the superpowers and who is about to become the mega superpower so tune in if you want to get some real good insights that you can learn on how to step your pivot game up too i'll see you on the flip Hey there, and thank you for joining me on The Flip. Let me go on and say this up front. Today, our format is going to be a little bit different. I'm going to be just telling you guys a story. And I will interweave some things in there that you can apply. And then at the end, I'll give you a a few little takeaways. But for the most part, we're going to be talking about a a story uh, of China and how they are within less than 50 years, how they are poised to be the top superpower of the world without having had needed to shoot a single bullet. Okay, so let's get into this. So on how is your pivot game? The reason why we're highlighting China is, yeah, they're a big country and stuff, but there were some things that are, are, are very applicable to us when it comes to navigating tough times. And this is a country where they went from being the, 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 the impoverished of the world uh, in modern times to now they are going to run the world again. Now, first of all, I want to give a shout out. And that is, if you look at China's long history, they've been at this for a while. I'm talking about from uh, prehistoric times into imperial times into uh, late imperial, and they have a long history, longer than most. And so I would expect nothing less than for a country with this many bones and ancestors, I would expect for them to find a way to pivot and to be an example if you're willing to learn the lessons. And I'll just say, 
What we want to do today is we want to eat the fish and leave the bones and learn how we can learn from them because there is the, oh, there's so much gravy on this, these bones of what we're going to learn today of how they were able to do things that, yeah, it's going to, it's going to help. So let's get into it. So I'm going to start this back in 1945. Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. So. 1945, the war is ending, and they have been on the uh, the winning side, if you will. They were one of the staunchest allies of the U.S. Uh, during the war from the U.S.'s involvement from 41 to 45, and they showed up. This was a, a rural, rural country where they were using plowshares and old spinning looms to make blanket for, blankets for their soldiers and doing everything they could. They started coming into the uh, industrial age uh, to start helping and making materials to help with the battle. And it was a concerted country effort. And so they emerge, 45, everybody who, you know, is anyone wins. But then their country falls into civil war. And so from 1946 to 49, there is a battle. And this is the thing. They just got through being the uh, right-hand, you know, folks of, of helping the U.S. But when the civil war breaks out, the U.S. Ha- uh, supports one side to, you know, keep it in line with what would quote unquote benefit us. But then there is an opposing side uh, that is um, about becoming self-sufficient and doing it on their own and having a shared community. And thus you've got the Republic of, of China fighting against the, uh, the side that is being supported by the U.S. Okay. So it Oh, I, I could say so much about this, but this is just a setup so that you can kind of understand where they are. I mean, there are tensions to this day. We're not going to talk about Taiwan. Um, no. And uh, Tibet. Nope, we're not going there. So there are a lot of bones. A lot of bones that we're going to let lie. Okay. So anyway. So, uh, 1949, there emerges a winner, and that is the Communist Party. And it is controlled by um, Mao Zedong. Yes, Mao Zedong, General Mao Zedong. And he takes over, and he goes to Tiananmen Square October 1st, 1949. He proclaims that now this is going to be all about us, you know, the Chinese, uh, showing our might and showing how strong of a country we are. Uh, so much so that the people who were on the other side, they they send them to these re-education camps, <laughs> you know, basically like, you will get this doctrine. You will receive this doctrine, right? So they they go in, they do what they're going to do. And at the at around this time, across this large uh, mass of land, because actually China, when it comes to land mass, they are the third um, behind Russia and Canada and how big they are. But going in, they only had 550 million people spread out around China. And most of it, like I said, these were rural uh, uh, settlements and things around this land. So they start out with 550 million. And 
by 1974. Just 24 years later, their population has exploded to 900 million. But guess what hasn't exploded? Their economic prowess and development. Okay? So they are looking at, oh my gosh, this is not good. And I'll just say, it got so bad that it wasn't even a decade in to the new uh Republic that from 58 to 61, they had an estimated 35 million deaths that were mostly from starvation. The people are starving and the rest of the world has moved on. Ain't nobody checking for China like that. You know, they're like, okay, y'all want to go do your thing? Have at it. And so you've got the Western world exploding after the, uh, war and everyone is moving and making all this money and all this stuff and the economies are for the first time starting to need each other globally like never before at first there used to be trade but now mm-hmm, now it is where folks are willing to put aside their differences and be like let's get this money let's let's get this power let's keep keep this popping okay so 1966, yeah, Uh, Mao gets a clue. He's like, we can't keep this up. We got to do something. So then he starts launching uh, cultural revolutions uh, that are all about him trying to figure out a way to to tweak the the brand, if you will, to be able to preserve uh, the the Chinese Communist Party so that they won't get overthrown, that, you know, the country won't go into another civil war and all these things, okay? So that's 1966. Cut back to America, okay? 29 years after World War uh, II, and now (laughs) we have Richard Nixon. And Richard is like, hmm, I see some opportunities. I think they are tired of struggling. So he reaches out and China is ready to bite because they need to do something. So he um, has this this um, uh, powwow, if you will, and he decides to come and visit China. He ta- he's the first U.S. president to come over to China in 1972. And a lot of stuff has been working. I mean, if you even think of, go back and look at like the Watergate files, they had an operative. Well, I, I don't want to say they had, but it's suspected that this lady was an operative for China to help get some help and some favor. Because it's mighty funny that October of 71, the they rebrand themselves. And so instead of being the Republic of China, they, they change it to uh, the PRC, the People's Republic of China. And then they make inroads into the United Nations to get a seat as a permanent member of the Security Council. Then 72, the first U.S. president to visit comes over. And so Mao looks like he's pulling it out. But he dies four years later in 1976. And of course, there is a new president in the U.S. And so the uh, aftermath of his death, they have uh, four four folks that quickly uh, take over. They call them actually the Gang of Four, but they are not in power for long because folks are mad. They're like, Mm-mm, "You got to go." And so now it is time for 
this uh, country to come to grips with where they are. They can't continue to go like this. The regime in America has changed. And I said regime. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And the world is continuing to make strides without them. So out of the ashes, Ding Xiaoping comes in and he takes power in 78. So let me go back and so y'all can track with me. 1949, they go into communism. Communism By 1958, they have massive starvation. That's only nine years later. They muddle through from 58 to 61, where, like I said, it's estimated that like 300, uh, excuse me, 35 million people die from related deaths around starvation, but they have an exploding uh, population as it is. So they're having kids and they can't feed themselves. And so by 1966, five years after that big explosion of starvation, Mao gets a clue and he starts this cultural revolution to start trying to find a way to save his republic, save his idea. And so um, however you want to spin it, if you if you look at what happened during Watergate and one of the operatives, this 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 wife of uh, a popular um, uh, mover and shaker in Washington, you know, she is working on behalf of getting the ear of um the the president and this is all around the time where it's going from Lyndon B. Johnson to the new president who ends up being um, Nixon and she's got, she's been working with him to try to get all this done. I mean, we're not going to even talk about all the other stuff going on with the with the wars where America is in there at that time. But I digress. Let's let's move forward. So by nineteen seventy two. Nixon has come for a visit, but Mao dies four years later and his folks that were the gang of four who were his right hand men responsible for the upheaval, change into the PRC and trying to try out these cultural revolutions, they are arrested. Mm-hmm. And held responsive, uh, responsible for all of the debauchery during this cultural revolution where, you know, they got their hands dirty. They started trying to, you know, pretend like they were Westerners and get the monies. So lo and behold, two years later, 1978, Ding Xiaoping comes into power. Now, I took this time to set this up because I need you to understand that when you are about to make a pivot, you don't make a pivot just by saying, oh, I think this will nice. This will be nice. Usually the pivots that matter are those that come out of hard lessons. They come out of suffering and struggle. So 1978, 29 years after they went, the China went into communism, Deng Xiaoping comes into power and the latter part of 78, by the way. And what he does is, is instead of trying to do cultural revolution and looking at it from a political standpoint, because he has got this different regime in America now, Jimmy Carter is in America, not and I, I, I don't want to call Nixon that nickname that my grandparents used to call him. But Nixon is gone. Carter is in. He's got some issues with Iran and the hostages and all this kind of stuff. But Dane got to get in where he fit in, you know, because the, time, the clock is ticking. So what he does is, is he plots the biggest 
pivot, glam up of the century. And instead of trying to, quote unquote, get help from the U.S., he positions himself to present China as a potential for extended growth economically for China and for the U.S. and other Western powers. So let me also put this this way. By this time, it's 1978, and we are at the beginning of what's going to become the Cold War. This is when military spending for the U.S. is going to explode and it's going to be my gun is bigger than your gun. It's going to turn into space wars in the 80s and it's going to get really crazy Um, because we've already had the race to space and then the moon and all of that where our attention has been on the Soviet Union bloc countries. And so... China is like, remember us? Remember when we had your back during World War II? Well, now we are going to present you with some opportunities and you just sit back and we're going to make sure that you see that this is going to work. So Ping does what a good Chinese uh, strategist does. He comes in as a comrade and a compliment instead of a competitor or a... um, uh, uh, enemy. Okay. So what he then does is, is he takes the best of what he sees. And I'm not, I'm saying he, but the government, the government takes the best of what they see of what's been going on that they can retrofit into the Chinese communist way of doing things. And they come up with this, uh, this, this, framework. Yeah, because we've been talking about frameworks. This framework that is still in existence today. And this framework is called, you ready? It is called socialism with Chinese characteristics. And what that means is that they are going to allow special dispensations for these places called economic development uh, centers to suspend the rules of how they operate in a communist society. Why? Because this makes it really palatable to the West where they're like, I don't want your government and all my business. I don't want to have to work directly with your government, but I I would be willing to work with China in business if you keep your hands out of the pot. So they set these economic development places up. And the funny thing is, is they set up four as a test. And the government pushes money into these places. They break ground. They build infrastructure, city, uh, big city infrastructure with uh, ways to travel. Because remember, this was rural land. They built skyscrapers and um, roads and uh, water treatments and everything for, for these people. And because they got this explosion of growth, by this time they are hovering real close to a billion people. They are bulging at the seams. So they have to do a lot. They, they pass this one child rule. They do a lot to try to control what's going on. And guess what? The pivot works because they're not trying to show how they're trying to get uh, military might and power. They're not trying to, you know, secretly get nuclear power warheads and they're not trying to be in that kind of race. It makes it more palatable to everyone else so that they can start getting into the mainstream. Now, 
90, okay, so 78, Ping comes in, he uh, starts this uh, revolution, if you will, this economic revolution in 79. Now get this, by the time, not even a decade later, 89, by 89, they have been so successful that the students in the universities are like, look, we've got this economic development. Why can't we have, poli- I mean, economic freedom now, you know, where people who had never been able to make any money are now being pulled out of poverty. Even though the jobs don't pay much, they pay something and they're getting pulled out of poverty and getting better health, even though they work a lot. So the students at the universities in 89 are like, we need political freedom as well. And the government is like, "Uh, no, 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 no. Now, by now, um, Ding has done his thing and they're moving on to a, a new regime, if you will. And so because economic development is working and the students have, you know, this they can see how it will help. They don't want to be under communist rule as tightly as they have been. But this new regime that comes in, I can't say their names, it's like three of them. In the 90s, they're like, "Mm -mm, what you're not finna do is you're not coming in and messing up a good thing. So therein happens the, and I don't want to, anyway, I'll just say it, uh, it has been dubbed outside of China as the Tiananmen Square Massacre. I don't know what happened. We don't know what happened. So it was just, it was a little confrontation, big confrontation, not a little big confrontation that happened in 89. But this uh, trio of guys that came in in the 90s, they got smart. And what they did was they were like, we won't give you political freedom excuse me, but what we will do is we will continue to give you some economic freedom. And so they reopened their stock markets, their stock exchanges in 90. And so people are happy and now they start making money. So in the 1990s through the early 2000s, China becomes the leading exporter. They, um, However you want to look at it, you know, there was some funny business with their valuation of their their yen. Some people suggest it was artificially kept low. But how does this translate to you with your pivot? What they did was is they took the subordinate position. And that means that you have to humble yourself when you're pivoting, even though you possibly can and want to show off and get your status because you have made a name for yourself. They didn't. They waited. They were like, we will continue to be the workhorses for the West. We will continue to make all of your crappy plastic crap that you want. We will continue to keep our yen low so that we will still be uh, very attractive to businesses who want to use our services. And we will keep our mouth shut and do what needs to be done. So from the 90s, well, actually it was 79. So you've got the golden years, uh, almost 30 years from 79 when Ding comes in to all the way through 2008 when there's the Great Recession and the housing crisis in the United States. And um, you've got uh, Greece, the country having issues. I mean, it's problems all around. People are starting to have unrest and stuff is becoming very unstable. 
Another, another pivot that China does is instead of getting caught up in the maelstrom of what the world is going through, they're like, you know what? Y'all don't want to buy our stuff. It's sitting on the docks. Okay, fine. What we will do is instead of keep our factories closed because of no demand from the outside, we will pivot again and we will turn in, inward and we will work on our, we will concentrate on our gross domestic product. What does that look like for you? That means that when you don't get work from the outside, you concentrate on lowering your budget of what you absolutely need to live on. And then you work on ways to do uh, what we would call in in my old industry, revenue management, meaning you turn, uh, you find new and innovative ways to take what you're already doing and make money in different ways from it. And that's what China did. Oh, yes. So, They kept the factories going to give people money. They actually infused $550 billion into their own economy to prop up jobs in the economy to weather the storm. And it worked. So 2008, everybody else is having problems. But in that seven-year span, China grew even more. Because now what they've done is they trained There are people that, you know, you can have whatever you like. And so people have a little money in their pockets. And when you get a little money in your pockets, you want stuff. So China is producing. They they have been exporting for other people. So they know how to they know how to make their stuff. And this is when the explosion of counterfeit goods happen. So not only are they able to sell these cheap, some of them are cheap. Some of them, you can't even tell the difference. But not only do they start selling these um, inferior or not inferior, these uh cheaper versions to their people, people on the outside want them too. So they start really ramping up that way. And now as it stands today, 85% of all of the counterfeit goods in the world come from China. They sure do because it became another way to pivot and continue to get that money in. Okay. So what they did was during that time, instead of it being a knockout blow, it was just a little scrape on the Saturday cheek because they went from doing the experts exports for everyone else to starting to give their people money and then putting putting products out in their own markets for them to buy. And when you have money, you want stuff. And then when you get stuff, you want more. So that in the 2008 to 2015 started their their thirst for communi- I mean for uh, commerce, consumerism, excuse me. So, we're in 2015. Now get this. During this time when everybody is still trying to increase their military budgets and and they're trying to figure out what they can do to make money and they're sending all of their business over to China because they can give you uh, cheap um, ex- uh, cheap imports and the like. What no one is realizing is that starting from 2005, even through when when 2008 hit. It was estimated that China was now starting to make even more of these economic development centers. So you remember they started with four back in 79 and by the early 2000s, they were well on the way to having 15 of these. Now, if I didn't make this this clear, those economic um, discovery and and, and development centers, those were the money engines to to get the country back on its feet economically. So they went from four to now 15. And these centers, all of them boast a minimum of 10 million people. They are super 
supersized um, communities. Now, this is important is because these economic development areas, they were what instituted them from becoming rich to becoming wealthy. We've talked about the difference between riches and wealth before. Riches are the monies that you can accumulate. Think of riches as income and money. Wealth is a, a, a system unto itself that can do everything that riches do and outpace it. So you get to this thing called the flip over point where your engines of wealth outpace uh, to astronomical levels. They tap into um, compounding interest and exponential expansion. And that is what China has now. And these economic development areas, these cities, if you will, are more than pumping out what they're supposed to, to the point where now, at the time of this recording, they're within a few years of outpacing the rest of the world by a whole lot with their gross domestic product and their wealth. And so looking at what they went from to where they are now, I made a few notes. And when I made these notes, I had to go and be like, what the what? <laughs> so what they did was, is while everybody else is putting monies into their big militaries and still trying to fight on the ground, you have to remember that these people, descendants of Genghis Khan and everyone else came through there. They've been in this business for a long time. They know good strategy. And when everybody else is trying to fight with their fists, they were determined to fight with their money. And so they learned from the Great Wall of China all the way through the Communist Party's 24-year uh, experiment with true communism by their means. They were like, we will no longer hide behind walls and behind politics. And so they, China went from building walls to building bridges. And what I mean is, is that during this time, 2015 and on, they have now started their next pivot, and that is what they call the Global Infrastructure Initiative. They've already pumped over a trillion dollars into this, where they have built infrastructure through their country, connecting their provinces of Hong Kong and Macau. But they've also uh, connected a gas, a natural gas line to their border all the way from Turkmenistan to there. And they built a railway from uh, Iwe to London. Um, they've built highways to Pakistan's water port. So they've got it from the east on their side as well as the west and Pakistan. And now they're reaching out to other areas in Asia as well as initiatives to do defense, um, to do infrastructure in Africa. And they are gobbling up a lot of clout, loyalty, and the like. And so they have learned to do their great pivot now that they have pivoted from poverty to power through economics. The next thing they're doing is uh, from economic power to global power by using checkbooks instead of swords. And this, my dear friend, is how you can go. When you set your mind on something, stay low. Don't cause any attention to yourself and you pivot because the first thing you need to do, and this is what I've learned from this whole ordeal, secure your income and your wealth, then secure your goodwill. 
Then secure your different types of power. And this is how they were able to become a global juggernaut without having to fire a single bullet. So guess what, y'all? My time is up. I thank you for yours. This has been Michelle Spiva, your practical priestess of wisdom with today's podcast of Wisdom Smack. Don't forget to check the show notes. And if you want to see more and get a good, I think a good documentary of this, if you got Netflix, check out History 101. They have uh, one of the portions is on China. It talks a little bit about this and that's it. Bye. And that's going to do it for today's podcast of Wisdom Smack with Michelle Spiva. If you like this podcast, please help us get the word out. Like, comment, subscribe, and even share. And if you really like it, please help us continue to get the word out by considering using this show's link for Amazon. So when you want to go to Amazon and you do all of your general shopping, Uh, please use michellespiva.com forward slash AMZ. It's simple as that. It doesn't cost you anything extra. And this show might receive a little bit of commission that will go towards helping to further get these episodes out to you and to others. So thank you so much for listening. This has been Michelle Spiva with Wisdom Smack. Bye.